Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In 1982, the Institute held a multi-day discussion of censorship. In this session from The Vault, sociologist Richard Sennett talks about Jean-Jacques Rousseau's ideas about censorship in the arts. The discussion is moderated by Arya Nair and includes Sidney Morgan-Besser, Susan Sontag, Joseph Brodsky, Richard Gilman, Francis Fitzgerald, Karen Kennerly, Hans Magnus Enzensberger, and Michael Scammell. Our focus today is not on the, uh, the censor, but on the, uh, the writer. This morning, Dick Sennett will lead off by talking a bit about the ways in which writers and censors are implicated with each other. What I would like to do, just to get this discussion started, is to talk about a very famous debate in the 18th century that in a way takes off from a remark that Christoph made last night, which is that censorship is everywhere. It is a debate about the inevitability of a writer being implicated in his own censorship. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's quite an intellectual uh, However, I will tell you how this debate got started. In 1756, Dalbert was visiting the city of Geneva. In Geneva, it was then, as it is now, a rather boring, puritanical place. At that time, all theaters were forbidden in Geneva, and D'Alembert wrote a letter to the town father saying, you know, this is terrible, this is a city deprived of a vital cultural resource, and you ought to reopen your theaters. In fact, it was just one of them. And in response to that, Rousseau, who was a uh, citizen of uh, Geneva, although at that time he was strenuously, and that's the irony of this, strenuously pursuing a theater career in Paris, wrote a letter defending the fact that theaters had been suppressed in uh, Geneva. And it's about that letter, which is a document of 47 pages, that I want to speak because it became a very celebrated theory about the relationship between the writer and the censorship of the society in which he lives. And it's an argument about cultural censorship and how culture is inherently a form of censorship and just what that means. Now, this letter has four stages to it, and they become progressively more and more extreme and more and more interesting. The first stage of what uh, uh, Rousseau answered to uh, D'Alembert is a cliché. That is, that the morals of actors and actresses are appalling. 
And to have these people existing in a city is quite terrible. And it's a very, very familiar argument that these are licentious people, and to have them in a city means that license will, will run right. Rousseau very quickly drops this kind of an argument in the letter and moves to something that is, in a way, it's underpinning, but also much more serious. And that argument is that the reason that the theater should be banned is that it encourages people to form their values by imitation, by mimesis. That is, that people sit and watch other people live on the stage, and that mimesis itself is a kind of impoverishment for those spectators. They're watching, they're having their manners formed, not by actual active self-expression, but by a mimetic process. The third stage of this argument is uh, something Rousseau asked for. Where does mimesis happen, and what kinds of cultures is this kind of mimetic seduction likely to take place? And the answer is, well, it takes place in very large cities. For our purposes, that's probably the least interesting part of this letter, although in another context it's the most interesting. The assumption would be that in a very large city, in an urban milieu, a cosmopolitan milieu, since there are so many strangers, that the only ways in which people really can know how to deal with each other and transact with each other is to have models that they can themselves act out. And that the theater, therefore, becomes the image for what all urban culture of necessity must be. It is the way in which a stranger displays emotion in front of other strangers. And that mimetic process will be taken out of the theater into ordinary life. So that, as Rousseau says, the equation becomes in a large city between citizen and actor. That is, that that's an absolute equation. Now, he happened to think that Paris was a hopeless milieu. You couldn't possibly use censorship in close all the theaters in Paris, but that in a city like Geneva, which was not as large, that it would be possible to prevent this kind of mimetic activity by employing a censor. The fourth stage of the argument, perhaps the most radical. Here, Rousseau argues, well, now look, what I've been, uh, for these 30 pages of this diatribe against mimesis, I've been arguing that in a certain sense that the authority of culture is something which is impoverishing to the creativity of, of individuals. Therefore, what I'm now going to argue is that if we want to keep repressing theaters in a place like Geneva, that essentially the state be given the power to engage in censorship in order to prevent this kind of cultural censorship which is inherent in mimesis. Now, what that argument is about can be looked at like this. We normally think of censorship as being like cultural censorship, of being a democratic mass, you know, sitting on the values of aberrant individuals. At the end of this argument, Rousseau says, no, this isn't what censorship really means at all. <clears throat> censorship means that when a group of spectators begin aping the cues given them by someone else, that that person who is able to arouse them also becomes their prisoner. He becomes, as it were, the person who excites them, the person who gives them a model. But at the same time, their very response to him means that he is being seduced by them into giving them more and more of what they want. I mean, he gets, the idea is intuitively obvious in a way, he gets more and more praise from them. As he gets more and more praise, he becomes more and more their prisoner. And at the end of this letter, Rousseau says, now that is a form of censorship. It is a form of censorship via seduction. How can we protect the artist from that kind of censorship? 
Well, the only thing we can do is use the authority of the state, set against that kind of authority of culture. And therefore, we employ instruments of state repression, like cracking down on the theaters by law, in order that the people will not act as censors upon the great individual minds of our time by seducing them through praise. It's a very perverse argument. I want to talk about a little postscript of this letter, which it seems to me will focus us back on the themes of this, this conference. And that is that Rousseau says, well, now, look, I've been talking about theater and playwrights and audiences, but it's very clear to me, he says in this little postscript, that actually what I'm talking about is art and the relationship between all art and culture. The reason for that is very simple, that every artist becomes the prisoner of his ability to provoke others. The moment there's a response, a provocation occurs, and that there's a response, any artist becomes implicated the moment he responds to someone who has responded to him in that process of being dragged down to their level. And he ends this letter, this postscript to this letter, with a question. I can conceive of an artist who is not implicated in his own degradation only by conceiving of an artist who has no audience. And I can conceive of such an artist as very rapidly losing the will to create. <laughs> uh, therefore, I conclude that the essential tension in modern culture is between the desire to flee and the necessity to be degraded by mass standards in order to want to continue to speak. I think that's virtually a, a quote of it. Now, I realize it somewhat changes the terms of what we mean by censorship, but it does. This letter of Rousseau's is an, is an important document because it argues, as did Christoph last night, that the notion of a censorship-free milieu is a red herring. The question is, what kind of censorship? Much more importantly, it argues that any process of expression in society sets in train certain kind of currents which are a, a danger for the artist, which are censoring in the sense that he becomes the prisoner of the very taste that he's creating. And it's that kind of tension which, in Rousseau's life, was terribly important. I also think it's an issue that's well worth us looking at today in a kind of much more broader context. Let me just ask you uh, for a moment, is, is it your sense of all that a society which does not have official censorship is always one in which art is going to be degraded? Does that test practically? Is that what we observe around us? Well, I give you Rousseau's answer and I give you my own. Rousseau's answer was the purpose of the positive benefits of official censorship or the censor culture. That if you don't have official censorship, you have another kind of censorship, which is a cultural censorship which has its own dynamics. And that good official censorship is directed towards freeing the artist from the worst aspects of that cultural censorship by repressing certain arts and bringing other arts forward. Repressing the theater and bringing forward poetry. Right? Uh, and the cultural dynamic that would then affect the poets insofar as they have created their audience. Yes, insofar, but he assumes that they're much likely to do so. My response to your question would be something as follows, that once one stops worrying about whether there is official censorship and looks at the very act of having an audience as also having a censor, then another set of questions come in, into play in which freedom has a, very, has a very different meaning. 
If you go back to that little thing that Bob Silvers quoted at the beginning last night, the Orwell's quote that liberty is hearing uh, the society hearing what it doesn't want to hear, what Rousseau would say would be, and I think this is correct, that is an absolute phantom notion of liberty, because after a while they get accustomed to it, and at the moment that people can be accustomed to listening, to hearing, that the person who's come to tell that truth will be at that point the prisoner of those who are responding. He has to talk back to them. He has to explain what he means. He can't merely keep reiterating position, but there's give and take back. And at that moment, he's becoming engulfed by their cultural standards, their tastes, as much as they're being provoked by him. It sounds like a variation of Marcuse's repressive tolerance. No, not at all. It sounds as though you're being drawn in by the process of expressing yourself. Oh, oh I see. Yes. Um, and, and thereby uh, losing uh, what you have to say in the process of being drawn in. Yes, it's something like that. But the notion would be that any writer that has a public is already censored, and that that activity is far below the surface of political censorship. A political censor could tap that, right, in order to say to the public, well, you've done this forever. You know, why? I don't understand what you mean by by any artist writer that has a public is already censored. Censored is to stop somebody from doing something. Somebody who has a public is, is not being stopped. They may be being judged, but they're not being stopped. I don't understand the whole... It becomes captive of the audience. But that's, that's but, I mean, matter, that will always be a matter of judgment and opinion. Certainly. That's something that nobody will be able to prove and that many, many people writing would never agree with. There's two things which would strike me in this argument. One, one is that... Uh, seems to me that there's a sort of fake radicalism in the argument. It's very familiar to hear that because uh, this, kind of, this type of thing has been repeated by the historic avant-garde all the time. That's right. And that the fact, for example, that you are successful or that your things are being accepted by anybody at all is uh, an argument against what you've been up to because it means that you've not been <laughs> radical enough. It's a very familiar argument. Another thing that strikes me is that it sounds not so much to, to our ears, doesn't sound so much an argument on the theater, but an argument on television, because it's all about the Nielsen thing, the, the argument which, which Rousseau is making. And uh, in the criticism of television as a phenomenon in our civilization, uh, there are plenty of echoes of these That's arguments. Yeah. In fact, in, in Germany, we have now a row about, uh, because we have a public television system, and they are now trying to, to diversify into commercial television as well. And uh, the people who defend the system argue a little bit along the lines of Rousseau. They say that uh, once you uh, opt for commercial television, see what has happened in America, you get a mass audience and you become captive of this audience. Therefore, in order to protect the freedom uh, of expression of the artist, and of, uh, we, we have to limit television. We have, in other words, we have yes, be a perfect to narrow, narrow down the possibilities of television in order to protect this possibility of minority voices. Also, the argument against television as such is, yes. is exactly that exactly. argument, exactly. that people become passive, mm -hmm. that they get their standards from images. Oh, no, 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 no. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's, that is that, that's yeah. the perfect Rousseauite argument. And of course, in order to prevent them from being passive, <coughs> we, will re, we will repress and censor the television itself. That's a perfect Rousseauite argument. But the effect on the people listening or to TV or the people going to the theater, the effect of the people on the others. I and mean, it seems to me two distinguishable things. I'm not sure which one to focus on. Mm -hmm. 
But I don't understand th th exactly why you want to broaden censorship uh, the way that you are. I mean, I, I, I see there's a group, great impulse on the part of many people here not to limit censorship to the notion of official censorship. That is a bureau or board of censors, a person who says this cannot be published, this can be published, or whatever. But if you take it as far in the direction that you have taken it, it censorship is, is equivalent to any modification of the of the a kind of pristine creative act. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to me that for a work to be modified or for the consciousness of an artist to be modified by the reaction of an audience or the reception of a work is censorship. It's called being alive. I mean, right. you could also say that to be alive is to be in the process of dying. Mm -hmm. And that is not incorrect. Well, Dick I find it hard to understand what you all, Rousseau, uh, meant by using the word censorship in this context. It strikes me as a, as a stretching of the word to something I just don't understand. For example, there's no proposal here to censor by insisting that only correct or approved images are presented, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. No, what you're saying, what he argues for is the elimination of the medium, suppressing the medium in order to prevent its abuses, right? Yes. Well, that's more than censorship. That's that's a total act by which you haven't got the problem anymore because the grants were gone. No, I think uh, you know? there's. Well, a, I don't understand what that how censorship. No, no, there is a uh, there is a notion of censorship which is implicit in art itself because art, by imposing its standards onto the audience, yeah, censors the audience. That's perhaps the idea. Yeah, I would, I would like to argue that. Yeah, it's and vice versa. No, not vice versa. No, because well, basically, uh, at best or worst that can happen to an artist. He is getting uh, not exactly corrupt, but uh, uh, we are not talking about artists being corrupted by the tastes of audience. What may happen to the artist is that his notions are getting compromised by the approval or disapproval, yeah, for him himself, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, 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 well, I just like to sort of put it together what Susan mentioned. I mean, none of us believe that any change of attitude and belief is a form of censorship. So the problem that Rousseau seems to be asking is the analogies between censorship and your liberty is lost and your attitude to change the result of that. What kinds of changes of attitudes are concomitant with some notion of loss of liberty? And why is that bad? Why is there not a creative relationship between the artist and the artist? But an unwilling change on the part of the artist in response to the advantage of it struck me that you have to consider the historical moment in this argument, and something in it ties in with what Mr. Wolf said yesterday about censorship being normal as a <coughs> censorship. And that may be a questionable argument for the last 150 years, but the point is, up until the time that Rousseau wrote, it was normal that everybody accepted the authority, basically, of the church, and that this authority set the, the framework in which you wrote and you worked, and these were the standards that you, you sort of tried to observe. And there might be, of course, the, the index of censored books was the, you know, was the classic expression of censorship in those days. But what happened at the time of Rousseau and then of the Romantics was a, an assertion of individual freedom of the right, particularly the artist's right, to follow his own bent, come what may. And it seems to me, I'm sorry, I missed the first part of Dick's presentation, but what Rousseau was confronting is a, is a kind of angst, you know, he's broken away from all authority, and he's finding that, well, he hasn't got absolute freedom because what he's doing is modifying by how the audience uh, perceives what he's saying. Yes. And it seems to me that this historical moment was extremely important if just 
one last word. When I researched an article on this subject and looked up the word censorship, the word censorship is a very, very recent origin. Censor, of course, goes back to Roman times, as somebody said, and then there was the index librorum prohibitorum. But censorship as a concept really only comes at the after the end of the 18th century, right. after the encyclopedists and the interface. So I think perhaps that has to be taken into account. Well, I, I think uh, what, 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 when I speak of fake sort of radicalism in the, in the argument, I mean also from a way the artist is viewed. Uh, it's interesting to note that at the very beginning of the modern sensibility, there's already a sort of mystification in it. Because obviously this, this notion of the artist being uh, to that extent apart from everybody else and being only himself does not at all correspond to the, to, to the realities of the creative creative act, which is never a monologue, of course, which is something depending in its turn on what people before you have been doing. There's also an element of dialogue in creation, because you don't start up over. So uh, it, it's very, really very hard for me to conceive of art being what Rousseau seems to think it is. Well, you see, that's what's, uh, one of the things that's, that's so fascinating about this argument, both historically and in terms of your consciousness, what's false about it, is that he is one of, in fact, given the, the sort of evolution of secular culture, he is one of the first people to consider what it means for an artist to be a creative individual. If you take seriously the notion of individual liberty, what does it mean to be at liberty as an individual? And that's why this whole architecture of fear arises in, in his mind. How could I possibly be at liberty as an individual? This is obviously a contradiction in terms. Now, if I'm not at liberty as an individual, uh, and the attempt is to, to distinguish two kinds of restraints upon that liberty, the notion of censoring is used there because one could move from one of those restraints to the other. That is, one could move from one of those cultural restraints, which we would look at as a give and take. Mm -hmm. For him, so no, no, for in terms of trying to achieve this individuality, that culture is more dangerous to me, that secular culture of audience, right? Audience cut free of religious standards and whatnot is more dangerous to me than the state. To use Rousseau, your term or your discussion about mimesis and mimetic experience, it seems to me that censorship in various forms has been used to reinforce the inferior images that are imitated, and that the process of what we call innovation or change uh, in the theater has been to fight that. In other words, the, the kinds of innovative work in the theater has always been on the part of various playwrights and theatrical uh, you know, revolutions in acting and so forth, always been to replace the worn out images or the, or the fixed frozen images of human life by new ones. These are disturbing. Censorship in that sense is conservative. There's a line that Buchner inserts into Dunton's death in which he talks about people going to the theater and precisely what we're talking about, looking at other people's lives, and then he said going out and judging God by his bad creations. <laughs> and what Buchner meant was precisely that playwrights, traditional, unimaginative playwrights, were offering the public images of human life that fit, that were comfortable, that were uh, you know within the bounds of the culture as it existed, whereas what he wanted to do was shake all that up. Turned all in the same way. And Chekhov, you can see the first reactions to the place. It's not, it's not official censorship, but in a certain sense, when Chekhov's seagull uh, is uh, St. Petersburg in 1896, and the people sit there, and they, and they don't know what's going on. They can't understand it, because it's new human behavior. 
And, and there's a kind of a quasi-official censorship. The theater is not going to extend the run of the play. The uh, newspapers read it with silence. <laughs> four years later, uh, uh, three years later, Stanislavski comes along with a new way of, of enacting or acting this new drama, and the play succeeds. So in other words, what I'm saying is I think censorship, insofar as we're talking about it in the mimetic sense, is a means of preserving the existing images and the existing models. And that anti-censorship would then be a movement for freedom to present counter-models or counter-images. Yes. I just want to say that um, listening to what you've been saying touches something in my personal experience. In Canada, you probably all know that there's been a, in the last, say, five years, as there has been in Australia, there's been a very strong nationalistic movement. That is a, uh, a feeling that the writer has a responsibility to identify who a Canadian is, where Canada is, no surprise that it's something like a, it's not who we are, but where is here. But suddenly the writers found themselves in this self-censoring situation. That is, no work could be authentic unless it, spo it spoke to those kind of cultural right. dilemmas. Suddenly uh, Canada Council grants were awarded to writers who were speaking to issues which had a national yeah, content, exactly. and uh, it was in fact curiously destructive because it meant that you were co-opted in an infinitely subtle way. Isn't the problem so great when you connect with this general political philosophy? As I understood the thing that Rousseau was worried about was that no individual can remain comfortable with himself unless he feels he can be a member of the community where there's some self-imposed general rules that they all accept. Then he thinks that, given this, you might get a stable community. Given this, an artist can't fit in because he's not going to. His role is not to simply take these self-imposed rules. His role is more or less to keep on challenging them. Where an artist will fit in will be in a big city where there aren't these big rules anyway. There is no community, so it's a paradoxical. Insofar as the culture is needed to remain as a culture, you need rules. When you need rules, the artist won't fit in. Where will the artist fit in? the big cities, etc. And we know, and he has, then his other part, that the big cities can't last. They can't get themselves opposed. And so, so the paradox, without using the word censorship, is where the artist really has a role, the community can't last. I think that Rousseau is simply more honest and more radical than most writers. What he's saying is true, of course, that in the name of absolute freedom, uh, you have to invent tyranny. Uh, that um, in order to abolish censorship, you have to invent uh, censorship which is even worse than the one you originally wanted to get rid of. And that's exactly the way uh, how writers are forging the ideological weapons uh, by uh, which they are being, uh, with which they are being punished yes. themselves later. Like Rousseau uh, prepared ideologically the French Revolution, which of course did some of these things that he uh, said, like uh, banning all theater for a certain time and, and all that. The dialectics of literature and, and power are um, not one-sided. Uh, literature is always involved uh, with power and um, the writers are not innocent. They, don't, they not only protest against repression, torture, uh, and uh, uh, that kind of thing, they also produce it themselves with words. They prepare the ground for it. Yes, I would say that you, you put it much more eloquently than, than I do. That, that is his position. If you go back to your national example, that every time a writer will seek out an audience, 
that he will prepare in them the mindset to then make those demands upon him. The concept of liberty, of expression, in other words, is a profound deception in his mind. And it's a question of what kinds of tyrannies will be used from the point of view of that writer in doing what he wants to do. If he really wants to be free of the people, then he needs the tyranny of the state. It's a very provocative argument. Yeah, that's just a short thing. Uh, this is not exactly the precise frog, the entire argument, but I'll just put uh, something aside one. Uh, basically, uh, the, the idea, the phenomenon of censorship, of censoring, of considering something uh, wrong and unsuitable for for the performance of the stage, well, derives from the very simple thing, from our basic ethics, from the hierarchy existing between good and evil. All right? Insofar as we are affording this kind of a thing for, the, for ourselves, if, insofar as we are going for this kind of a hierarchy, well, we are going always condemn one thing and approve another, etc. Right. This is one. Another thing is, uh, well, this is one issue which uh, I, I want uh, sort of uh, lurk uh, behind uh, this discussion. Another thing I would like to say, well, when we're talking about the writer and what he's doing, what happens to the audience and the way he depends on the audience and the way the audience starts to depend on him and so forth, quite willful because we are talking mostly about the context, uh, or the context or the content, well, uh, content of uh, what he's saying. And uh, censorship, is, uh, as we were talking yesterday, doesn't react necessarily well censorship against the content. It re uh, reacts against the style. And uh, more frequently, anyway, all the cultural <laughs> censorship reacts against the style. And the thing is that the writer, in, in his production, and his, in his endeavors, is guided not so much, in my view, by the considerations of what to tell his audience, but by his language. In fact, one writes merely because one's writing is the reaction against the, uh, the stuff being written before, against the uh, previous or existing stylistics, etc., etc. It's a proliferation of the language, you see? Well, we should mind, uh, uh, or proliferation of style, if, if we want to narrow it. So therefore, I would say, uh, getting uh, back to that idea that well, a writer uh, designs the tyranny, well, there is one real tyranny in the mind, in the mind of a writer, uh, the, the terror of uh, somebody being better than him. You see, or to, uh, the impossibility to achieve a certain verbal stylistic goal, and this is the real tyranny. As insofar as he is really writing, etc., etc., the rest, all those things, all, all those political manifestations of uh, well, suppression of his work, etc., etc., he merely regards them uh, out of his basic innate insecurity. He merely regards them as, as, as uh, certain forms of punishment of him being punished for uh, unsuccessful attempts to convey his aesthetic, his style, his... So whenever the policeman pops up on the threshold, on his threshold, he regards him as perhaps a very cruel, vulgar, inadequate, st but still a messenger of the of the fates. <coughs> yeah? You mean anything that stops a, a writer from an is a form of censorship? Pardon? Where you're going, it seems you're saying yeah. anything that stops an artist from a sense of omnipotence is a, sense, is a form of censorship. Well, yes, well, in a broad sense it is. For sure, but, 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 but that word, uh, <laughs> is the, does the word have any meaning left? No, I think it still has. Well, and the point is, no, I, I'm sorry, but this is the last thing I'm going to say for a while, anyway. <laughs> no, yeah, false, false, perhaps. The point is that uh, we, we really should specify, because basically when, uh, the censorship is a catch 
word uh, in our mind, and that uh, always means something concrete, well, uh, imposed upon us by the press, by the usage of that in press. And by, well, basically, when we say censorship, we mean political censorship. However, uh, what we're talking really about here, we're talking uh, about several things simultaneously, and this right. is why I was trying to distinguish things yesterday. Uh, we're talking uh, essentially about what curbs the advancement of uh, thought or advancement of style, or adv advancement of the language, yeah? And in that respect, in that respect, they, uh, all those things that uh, curb it or encroach upon the writer, etc., in one fashion or another, is, could be damned as a censorship. Uh, we should keep in mind a censorship, the censorship, the concrete political censorship. Yeah. Richard, this is This is, seems to me, what, what Susan was asking before. Why expand this definition? Mm. The word censorship, after all, is a dirty word. We don't like it. It's a swear word. Why don't we talk about controls on freedom of expression or limitations on mm -hmm. freedom of expression? And if you do that, then you start making some, some distinctions mm -hmm. about how this happens, how it's happened in the history of the world and how it happens even today across the broad stretch of countries. You could, I suppose, take the, the Swedish example that I was talking about with before, in which you, you have a, no censorship at all, except that the society very carefully takes charge of uh, managing what is and is not said in very gentle and very perhaps democratic ways. On the other hand, you have one in which a, which a state takes the, the total role and saying, mm. this is it, and that's where the lines are, and no more, and if you don't like it here, go somewhere else. Mm. But, so yeah. you have a, a different range yeah, of control. What I'm saying is I think we should discuss at some yeah. point the distinctions between the different kinds of the way right. censorship is applied. You have a free market model on the one hand, and a totally controlled economy on the other hand, and they're all in many ways the same kind of thing. I agree and I, I would I would expand on this to the extent of saying that one should perhaps distinguish between censorship and just simply pressure. And this is not only a distinction, a logical distinction or a terminological distinction, but it's also a moral difference involved. I think people in our type of society are too prone to compare notes too easily because it's it's if if, if I think about the situation of a Czech writer well, I can tell any amount of stories about West Germany, people having trouble, but there's a, a qualitative difference, which is a moral difference also, and I think uh, this is in danger of being blotted out by the type of Rousseau's argument, because you, you don't have a case if you say, I want to be exempt from pressure, <laughs> because nobody else is exempt from pressure, why should artists be immune from the normal cause of risks, life is full of risks in any society, and an artist is somebody who has to take certain risks. There's a sort of whining undertone about this, which, are, which is typically Rousseau and which I detest. <laughs> <laughs> that from the beginning. I mean, I think it's, it's not even censorship that, that's being used here. We've now expanded it to mean, or to borrow Sydney's word, anything which limits the omnipotence of the artist. And I think that's absurd, as, as Hans Magnus said. The artist is always sharing space with other people, with the audience, with the entrepreneurs of his or her work. I, I was very amused that Bob Silvers said last night, <laughs> Well, of course, I could be considered a censor. Uh, I'm an editor, and I recently had an experience with him. He published an essay of mine in which he insisted that I cut about four paragraphs of it. Originally, he insisted that I cut eight. I got four back. <laughs> I still would not 
say that he is a censor. No, it's stretching the I share the space. It's my essay. It's his magazine, and the famous phrase. So there was some negotiation. <laughs> I share a space with lots of other people. Pressure is brought to bear on me. I respond to this. It seems to me that is not precisely, despite his cute remark, he is not a censor. He's simply a manager, and there are negotiations and modifications. He may be right, I may be right. That's another issue. But the kind of censorship, if, if we're going to use that as the audience's censorship, the editor's censorship, we have lost the whole meaning of the problem, which is that the vast majority of people in the world right now cannot publish or create or say the things that we can say with all the pressures that are brought up to bear upon us. And it's that that should be obvious to us much less the fact that censorship has been the norm in society until the last 200 years, everywhere. So, I mean, it seems to me we're, we're just going to talk about living, dying, being modified, being affected, being influenced, having to negotiate, having to give ground. We have lost the meaning of the word censorship. It has no value whatsoever. So it's very North American, as oh, okay. Mr. Duke would say. I just want to go back now to something which I think was within the limited meaning of censorship that, yeah. that Susan was just talking about and that we have gone beyond. And that's a thought I have about censorship or the censoring mind or the censoring power as being opposed to or based on a refusal to understand the nature of the imagination itself. There's a very interesting story told about Mrozek, the Polish by Mrozek. Uh, tango is a play in which a group of people live in a large house and um, don't work. They spend the play having emotional and intellectual encounters. And they have no visible means of support, and nothing in the play has anything to do with their, with their labors. When the play came out, the Polish press, critics, violently attacked the play. The basis of the attack was summed up by one critic's statement, how can these people live in Poland and not work in a socialist state? And Rosic's answer was, they don't live in Poland, they live on the stage of the theater. I think it's a very important point. The censoring mind could not understand that there is this imaginative realm which is not the true world and is not a reflection of the real world. And the censoring mind almost always insists on bringing that imaginative realm into the actual world where it can be judged by questions of power, correctness of policy, and so forth, morality. And, and I think what Rochek was doing was simply saying, no, this is not the realm that you operate in. I operate in that. It's nothing to do with my rights outside my realm, but within the realm, my rights are those. My rights are to give this play, these people, no visible means of support. I think it's an important... Uh, yes, it uh, is. <laughs> we should, we should, no, uh, it's quite interesting uh, as a story, except I wouldn't necessarily buy Mrozik's argument wholeheartedly, so to speak. Because I think he said that in order to defend himself. Of course. Because basically, what, uh, whenever writer sets uh, that, uh, uh, his characters on the stage, there is quite a connection, at least in his own mind, whatever it is, the, in fact, extrapolation of uh, whatever it is, his existential experiences, etc., etc., etc. So that was smart as that uh, remark was. It was the, uh, the defensive remark. Mm -hmm. And this is what, uh, what's most The only about. answer you can give to, to a, a censor is a defensive remark. Yeah, true, but no, uh, we shouldn't really um, buy it as a statement of the artist's philosophy. That's the point, yeah? Well, well we should it take this as a pitch of thought, yeah? Tactical. Yeah, tactical trick, yeah. I'd like to put in a word in Rousseau's defense, since I disagree with what, the, what Susan was saying and what Descartes uh, was, was saying. Uh, in this sense, that I think it's very important 
When we start comparing our situation to the situation in Eastern Europe, we obviously see a kind of difference which is very striking, and, and it leads us to imagine that when there are not political instruments of uh, repression, that, that there are that the repression is not. No, nobody's saying that. Is, no. Nobody is saying that we think there are no pressures on us. No. We're just saying the difference is so huge, so qualitatively important that we must constantly take it into account. Nobody is denying that there are not pressures informal censorship and even formal censorship of all kinds in bourgeois democracy. Oh, sure. Nobody, no, no, no. But nobody is unaware of that. Yes, I understand. It's just that if you treat them all on the same level, you blur the men's qualitative difference. No, 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 I'm not, I'm certainly wouldn't, and I think it's unfair to Rousseau to treat them as all on the same level. What he is arguing is that purely within the realm of culture, there are ways of understanding things which are not so benign as influence <coughs> and take and so on but that there are, in fact, kinds of influences, pressures, and so on, in which the artist participates, in a sense, in giving up his own vision. He's willing to make a trade-off between a certain kind of crea creative site, which he has, for the sake of, in fact, having a community, that is, to having, having an audience. The argument of Rousseau, and I think in its own terms now, in its own terms, the argument of Rousseau is that it is a form of censorship in that in that, that transaction between himself and his audience is always unequal. It's unequal because what's being traded is not his influence versus their influence, but their love versus his vision. And in that, the attempt to gain their love will always compromise his vision. I, I don't know how to get this point in because it doesn't fit here at all, but I just, when you discuss cultural censorship, and I came here thinking about it, and in the last, and I find that all my thoughts are very non-intellectual, I guess, but four or five stations, television stations were taken away from some from a company last week. And this could be called, as I thought about it, cultural censorship. And I wondered how did they choose that when all the others, how would you distinguish between those and equally bad ones uh, that have not been touched at all. And I was wondering... What were the grounds? They the, the grounds were that they didn't show enough public affairs of some of some, some way. But it seemed to me that... Oh, excuse me, and the instrument for this was an agency of the federal government. Yes, so. the, the, the FCC. Now, it's a, now, that, now it, it represents huge amounts of money. It represents the United States government for the first time coming in and making a cultural decision and it seemed to me that somehow, at some point, this group should talk about that. I don't know where it's going to go, but how did they make it? Who made it? It, it is genuine censorship. Probably, it may be good, may be bad, but where is it going to go to? Why didn't they take every all the television licenses? Uh, wouldn't they have been right doing that? How does all that fit into this discussion? Uh, very simply, because in every in every society there is that kind of a sentiment, cultural sentiment. And this is the way, well, to defend uh, Dick's point, not so much Rousseau's point, but what he's saying. Well, basically, there is a tendency, well, we know that, well, to suppress or whatever it is, for whatever reasons, political, aesthetical, any kind of reason. And uh, the societies or the political setups in Eastern Europe, in that realm, merely are uh, an aggravated form of that tendency. As simple as that. And, well, it's not exactly pointless. But the, uh, well, the way Dick was talking about it is, uh, is a little bit uh, really blotting out uh, several things. But basically, the, what we, uh, I think, should talk about is the tendency 
and its manifestations, because tendency is essentially the same, yeah? Except in one or in various instances, it's more or less vulgar. Well, I don't know whether people want to take it. I want to go back to the Roger point mm -hmm. and Joe's reply. So do you want to keep this trend going and then come back to what I want to say? We're going to think, oh, the, yeah, the trends move <laughs> very quickly. Right. Well, the thing I just wanted to mention, and I, it ties in uh, with some of Rousseau's remarks too, the Mrozhek story raises the question of, in fact, the influence of art or the influence of anything. And most debates about censorship go back to the concept, well, how important is this mimetic principle? In other words, when people go come out of a play or finish reading a book, do they go off and imitate it? Or are they left completely uninfluenced by it? Or at what point along the scale is the influence exerted? If you look at the censor's mind, he's stopping something, and pornography is perhaps the most sort of obvious example, but in his mind he's equating a pornographic book in decency. Or with an incitement to action in decency. I believe it's something that philosophers call speech acts. That are, I feel it's time also to invoke uh, the shade of Plato, who based his argument for censorship on precisely this, that by setting bad examples and giving bad models, you were promoting immorality in society, and that this, the censor's ultimate argument is, and he always gives it, is public interest or public morality. So to come back to Mrozek, as Joe pointed out, was a defensive answer to say these people are only on the stage. In a sense, he was right, they were only on the stage, but did he want people to draw conclusions? And was the censor right in saying they would draw the wrong conclusions, therefore it's harmful to stage this play? Yeah, well, my, I, my point is simply that there is a confusion of, of realms here. A, a, but I think there's an argument between... But we're all confused, because okay. I don't think anyone can say at what point someone goes out and imitates or is influenced by it, and at what point they it just passes... Well, the censor assumes that there will be... I mean, that's yes. clear. And the artist thinks he's right. And Yeah, I think that um, there are two meanings of the word, as usual. Uh, in ordinary language philosophy, censorship is something dirty. You have to protest against it. And I think we all agree, I don't want to make fun of that, it's really something uh, uh, fundamental. But it's always something which happens elsewhere, in Eastern Europe or in... Um, no, in, in Russia, they'd say that it happens in this country. This is less visible in America, perhaps because of the uh, tradition of free speech, which is uh, in Europe, which has never uh, been accepted. Yeah, it was always uh, a lie, an illusion in Europe. But there is the more dangerous and more ambiguous meaning of censorship in the sense of Rousseau, that the writer is an accomplice of power, an accomplice of uh, of the things he's fighting against. The, disciples of Rousseau, the, his modern disciples are the intelligent censor, like the Count of Meta, Count Metternich, who said after reading Heine's poems, excellent, has to be confiscated immediately. Mm. <laughs> yes. And on the other hand, the writer who is a censor himself, like Goncharov, was a, who worked as a censor all his life, and he did a very good work, I suppose. He helped many writers to get published. At the same time, he learned a lot from their manuscripts because he could read that at first. And the um, 
that ambiguous notion of censorship can't be denied just because we don't like it, but I think it does exist, and Rousseau was one of the first to, to define it. Michael. Um, just one thing which bothers me a little bit in the, in the Rousseau formulation is that it seems to me that if you're talking about this other kind of, of ambiguous censorship, that you're really making the artist out to be a much more fragile character than he is, or you're really taking something away from him, which is the choice or the, the ability to confront risk, and the fact is that he can feed off of this risk, and that this, this exchange or this struggle that you're talking about, I think, is one that most artists wouldn't want to be taken away in, to quite the extent that uh, Rousseau would take it away. I think that, the, that, that if you take away all risk, that you're really, that you're really crippling art anyway, and, and this is what Rousseau is really saying if you carry it to the end. Well, I, if I understood that argument correctly, the Rousseau argument, so he seems to be making uh, the censor into a sort of protector of a writer's originality, because he says, well, a writer writes in a certain style, uh, people like it, he becomes successful, and he has a tendency to repeat himself in order to stay popular. Mm -hmm. So now steps in the censor and says, you must stop writing like this, you must stop in a way that the people won't like. And that's what actually the Soviet censorship has been doing. Any writer who responded to what the people actually wanted to read was censored and forced to write in a way that uh, to produce images that the people did not recognize as mimetic at all. Uh, socialist realist fantasies about how life should be. So in that in that way, a censor, the Soviet censors are the moral censors because they really forced the writers to write in such a way that the people won't take it, or the Czech censor. It's a strange paradox. <laughs> so, well, uh, when when you were speaking about the problem of, of the artist wanting to be loved. It strikes me that, uh, at least in our context, uh, there is there's an opposite uh, element more than the artist the avant-garde. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I think in our context, at least, there's also a, uh, an artist is also being, uh, there's a premium on his nuisance value. And uh, we could enumerate a lot of careers in our civilization where an artist has come to success yeah. just because he made a point of being hated by everybody, and eventually, after struggles, of course, a trivial case would be Henry Miller, for example, who has had no end of troubles, but finally, his triumph was that uh, they all came around to his point of view. But I think where we, where we would be is to somehow sort out, we can either decide that cultural censorship doesn't have a meaning, a, an echo of what happens politically, or we can decide or vice versa. <laughs> you would argue that it's vice versa. With Certainly. It, that all political censorship is... And I would say that cultural censorship, censorship in its censorship. own term is a spin-off of ethical censorship. That's what uh, I was trying to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, yes, but I think that really we should uh, always keep in mind that basic distinction that there is uh, an institutionalized censorship and there are pressures, you know, and these are really very different things. See, I think most people uh, use the word censorship to apply to the conditions when the artist, for whatever reason, is able to express or create something in a style. What worries you is the converse. What makes it unable for a writer to create something in the first place? Now, whether you use the word censorship or not is, to me, not interesting, but uh, it seems to me that if you raise the first, the second question, you do the converse. What makes the writer unable to create in the first place? 
rather than given that he is able to create, what happens to it? Now, if you do that, I don't think it's an answerable question. Certainly, because then the censorship would be the least... Uh, no, censorship in the normal sense isn't really relevant. That comes in after the person is, a, is already created something. I don't think it's an answerable question. It's what makes an artist able to create something in the first place. And what are all the conditions under which, even if he's able to do it, he won't finish it that way, or he'll stop himself, or say, this is silly. He'll use criteria and say, given these criteria, I, I think this is junk. I've got to rearrange it or write something different. I mean, is there an answerable question? It's not, I don't care about the word. Is your question admit of a, of a simple answer? Yeah, uh, actually, let's put this way. Perhaps what we should talk about is the institutionalized what forms of preventing a writer from saying what he wants to say, and also the institutionalized forms, on the other hand, of the audience or of the public, the institutionalized forms of, as I was saying yesterday, of the mental reduction of the audience's advancement, yeah? Then we would be talking about censorship, I think. Because uh, insofar as the cultural tendencies are involved, well, they always do exist. Well, the only thing is whether the state or any particular group of people gives them kind of a green light. Well, since you gave me license before to digress for what we can say immediately before one small digression, it occurred to me in listening to this conversation that really the censor could be regarded as the ultimate artist. He's trying to mold the thinking and the thoughts of the entire society and every reason direct competition. In the, in the reality, it's not such a case. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say the artist is there all the time. All he's interested in is changing the language. And the artist is ultimately the one who's creating values. I mean, you're shifting focus from one home to the other. I don't know what role yeah. people attribute to the artist. On the one hand, he's best understood as wanting to create a new style and competing with his predecessors. On linguistic, it's all alone. It's not in the real world. The next minute, the artist is this omniscient sharer and, uh, and uh, creator of all values. I mean, oh, the censor was the creator of all values. No, you say the censor is the ultimate artist, yeah. because that's what the artist does. May I say one more thing? Basically, well, I don't really know whether everybody will subscribe to that notion, but basically the way we understand the role of individual in the world is to absorb as much as one can from the past and to make the next steps, next logical, or perhaps illogical, step. <laughs> and anything that prevents an individual from that kind of a development, from that uh, next step, is censorship. Artist or a member of audience, it doesn't really matter so much. But insofar as we're talking about censorship and literature, let's talk about the way apparatus of prevention is applied to literati. Well, and in according to what Michael said about the censor being an ultimate artist, it's whimsical, but it's not true. Because the censors, as far as I experienced them in Russia, they're not exactly the people who are concerned in any way with art uh, or anything uh, of the kind. As I was explaining uh, last night at Berstein, well, uh, the, the way it works is a very simple, is in a very simple fashion. In the Soviet Union, there is a unit, the governmental unit, called the Department of the, uh, of the Printed Matters, Department which is responsible directly to the Politburo and not to any kind of ministry. Uh, in that department, uh, there are about, well, uh, two or three dozen of people who lay guidelines for the censors in places. Uh, the guidelines arrive in the form of a list of things at this or at that point are taboo to be printed, to be mentioned in the press. Uh, they issued twice annually, and the editorial employees are gathered in the uh, editor's-in-chief office upon the arrival of that uh, list, 
and the sensor that is assigned either to this newspaper or to any cluster of newspapers reads them on what's allowed these days and what's forbidden these days. We're talking about the actual censorship right now. Don't have any personal stake whatsoever. Well, they're not ultimate artists. They're just simple bureaucrats that perform the task, well, kind of given them by the superiors. The main work of censorship falls not so much on the censors, not so much even on the, those who lay guidelines, but upon those who are carrying the, them out, the members of the editorial board or whoever. When they get the manuscript, they judge it in the spirit, in the way they understand the spirit of the given letter. As simple as that. So, for instance, your real censor is your publisher. Well, in that realm, that is in the Eastern Europe, in, in Russia, whatever it is. Isn't that so? Yeah, that's so. Yeah. yeah. One last thing, for instance, there is a, even an apparatus of, com well, the idea of complicity introduced to any decision of the editorial board. When the manuscript gets submitted to, say, to this magazine, the manuscript goes through, well, every member of the editorial board has to read and approve or disapprove. Uh, and afterwards they decide by the, well, oh, it's normal, uh, in a way, democratic process, well, within <laughs> that editorial board limit. And if uh, there are more pluses than minuses, the manuscript goes to the press, and then, well, very seldom it's stopped by the censor or by anybody upstairs. Is that list available to the writers? No, it's not available to the, the writers. writers come to know what's on the list? No, very simple. Now this is a sanctus sanctorum. It's never uh, made public. Well, it's it's made public only the the place the list or the knowledge of that list stops is the editorial board. Do writers talk to each other about what they think might be on the list? Not really, because they don't really know. You can't deduce it from what is being. No, well, the writer, however, the writer, in his own turn, more or less knows the spirit of the letter. It's another removal, yeah, from the editorial board. He himself knows, and he certainly won't dare write a kind of a story where uh, the movement of the troops would be involved. But there has uh, to be things more, more peripheral than the movement of the troops, and that that has to be the place where speculation. Um, goes on. I suppose it's completely fake movement of the troops. I mean, you can't talk about movement of troops even if it doesn't exist. Well, actually, the way they do it, well, and this is kind of a, one of the ways to handle it, they say in the end, and that is unknown, and in a certain nameless area, in the end area, there is such and such uh, movement of troops uh, took place. This is the maximum thing they would allow themselves to dwell upon, yeah? Is there any discretion on the part of the editorial board beyond that letter? Certainly, well, uh, the general spirit of the society, the general idea, etc., etc. Ari, I, I don't disagree with anything that Joe said, and as he knows, I'm reasonably familiar with this apparatus, but I just want to defend my point, which wasn't totally whimsical. I know that these, uh, that the actual censors are great little men and cripples, and unlike these uh, civil servants who help Hitler carry out his Holocaust. What I mean is that the people at the very top are setting a world view, are setting a view of the universe and of their country and of international affairs and domestic affairs for their censors to carry out, which comes into direct conflict with any individual artist's view. They're imposing their view of the world at the expense of the artist's own personal view, which may upset the view that they're imposing on their society. Joe has uh, detailed one set of methods of doing it. In South America, you have another set of methods of doing it. The goal is ultimately the same. They are constructing a view of the world, which an artist, an original artist, challenges every time he puts pen to paper or, or brush to canvas. <coughs> now, what led me to this thought partly, if you want to see how this thing is done in detail, 
Polish censor defected in 1977 to Sweden. He took out 600 pages of censorship instructions and documents, which the CIA has translated and which I hope to collect in Washington next week. Uh, and there'll be a, a book on it eventually. The striking thing about reading these documents, I read many of them, as you sit and read, this worldview comes out at you. You realize that all those gray little instructions about troop movements or not to mention Nixon's name or not to say that you're importing coal from South Africa, you know, not to mention the Pope or something like this, bit by bit you see constructed a whole picture of the world which is imposed or intended to be imposed on everyone. And that was really the sense. Everything that Joe says about the way it then goes down and the ultimate aim of censor is to get inside the artist's brain so that the writer won't even put pen to paper to challenge that deal. And that's where we perhaps join up with your views of pressures in Western society. What the ultimate aim must be is for the writer, when he sits down, let's talk about the writers and talk about literature, is that inside his brain there's something telling him what not to write, what things not to approach. So it wasn't intended to be quite as whimsical as uh, Joe suggested. Rosa Luxemburg once said that the history of Russian literature is the history of censorship, uh, which is, of course, true. I don't have to list all the cases now, you know, then from Pushkin on. But I just want to mention Joseph's case because that's a very moving, if you permit, there's a very moving uh, sentence I read when you were asked, I think, in, in Leningrad, um, why you considered yourself a poet since you were not a member of the Writers' Union. You, you, and and who, who says this stuff that you write is poetry? How can you call that poetry? It's just uh, pornography or whatever they said. And he said, they said, well, how do you know that it's poetry and that you're a poet? He said, it's God. I mean, and this is the... Um, the point that every writer has to make when he's confronted with the state, that he's talking and speaking in his own right, and ultimately it's God. It's something above the state, some instance, some omni... A bigger state. A bigger state. A city of God. But on the other hand, the writer, that's again what I'm trying to say all the time, is a censor himself, and a much more ruthless censor many times, like Kafka wanted his own works burnt long before the Nazis burned books, and he was serious with that at that. Or Brecht wrote this sentence in his diary, he would pay for Thomas Mann's books to be banned. He would pay a large sum of money if he could achieve that goal. I wonder if Tara would say something about what we were talking about yesterday, about this kind of informal censorship that, that goes on in Sweden. Well, uh, I, I, I would start on, on another line uh, to begin oh. with. Uh, uh, because something I, I was just thinking of hearing Joseph and Michael. There are cases where censorship is not enough, where there are other limitations, even worse, on the right. I'm thinking of South Africa, which I know well, where the censorship law has 97 definitions of what is undesirable and thus punishable. But there is, as Nadine Goldman has pointed out, I mean, a 98th definition not written into the law, and that is how the apartheid laws themselves make it impossible for whites and blacks to meet and thereby impossible for a white author to um, know and portray the black majority or even isolated blacks, vice versa. So, I mean, when they try to depict people of a different skin color, the characters appear cliché. No writer in South Africa can portray his society as a whole. He's restrained from doing so by law. And one could say, I think, that an author cannot of experience everything 
He writes about everything that is going on in his realm or country. But he cannot write meaningfully at all about things that are excluded from the realm of his conceivable experience. And that, I think, is the crime of such a country like South Africa. I'm always thinking, I mean, of other experiences I've had in the emerging countries, newly independent in Africa, where I've seen another development which is not quite censorship, but has the same effect. Take as one example Cameroon. In the end of the 50s, early 60s, a flourishing literature, some quite important novelists, all of them critical of French colonialism, all of them almost publishing their books in France, but living in Cameroon, feeling at one with the anti-colonialist independence movements. Well, came then freedom, so-called, or independence. And then there was an explicit demand from the state that these writers demonstrate solidarity with their their country in its struggle, for instance, against capitalism or imperialism or whatever. And they were told that the nation could not afford criticism, they couldn't afford a free exchange of opinions, and this demand for loyalty and unity led to self-censorship among these writers who were, after all, more or less loyal to what they had earlier fought for. But they felt that their freedom of action was lost, and they feared, as they were told, that their works would be exploited by reactionary forces, by sectarians or neo-colonialists or what have you, and so very many of them fell silent, and this is the case today. One of the three best writers in Cameroon is here now, the, the uh, ambassador to the United Nations, and uh, preaching the country's case very loyally, although with some ironies in private. And he has ceased writing for the time being. Others have, have uh, gone abroad and uh, into exile, and are now in the same boat as they were before. I mean, that is criticizing the power the power that is. I think this is a phenomenon you find all over the, the, the third world, where there was a brief period of flourishing literature, and now writers are being put into prison, like all the Inca ones, or they are donning the grey suits at the United Nations, UNESCO, or you find them everywhere, or they go abroad. Another thing I was experiencing rather recently, talking about knowing the censor, was when I had a book which was on Southern Africa, published in Russia. I approached them saying, will you censor me? Or will you print this as as it stands? Well, I I managed in Moscow to get into a kind of dialogue with the translator and another chap at the publishing house. And they told me straight out, well, you have a choice. Since this book is basically anti-colonialist and thus sympathetic to Russia, on the whole this was in the objectively 63, we would print it word for word, even things we, we object to, but we will then have a long preface saying that you are a liberal uh, from a neutral country, you, you, you have not been brought up in the dialectics of Marxism-Leninism, the Russian readership must forgive you, that and that, but basically you are sort of sympathetic character or something. If you have that, we'll print everything. If you object to such a preface, we must make these and these deletions. 
Well, I said at the time, I, I'd rather have the whole work printed and have whatever you have as excuse preference to it, because any of the sunny reader will, will see what it is. So that was, that was then done. Uh, by the way, the man who wrote the preface is now out of the country in protest against the Russian policy. Now he was a country mm -hmm. bureaucrat. He's out. He went away. And when I read this preface, I thought it was too silly. So then came the poems with another book of mine, and they said about the same thing. And then I said, well, I will not have any preface, and it, uh, tell me about the deletions. And they then said, well, we like to delete only four, four phrases, and they enumerated them. I said, that is okay. One of them, by the way, was my quotation of the then Prime Minister of Rhodesia, Roy Velensky, saying that we have to look for a communist in every woodpile. So the, uh, <laughs> the Pope said, we cannot have this phrase. And I said, well, this is rather flattering. The, the he thinks there are communists everywhere in, in Rhodesia. Flattering for you. Well, they said, if you had said, looking for a communist in every house, but the unbelievers are thinking of the So that is, so that happened. I, okay. I well, well, are you uh, defending a moral thesis for the artist or a psychological one? What I have in mind is this. Some discussion sounds as if, if there's a society which says to the artist, Freedom of expression is not such a great value. What's much more important is economic growth and contribution to it. And the artist is sort of morally obligated to artists to object to it, or are you saying that even if he agrees, then it'll end up he won't be able to write psychologically so? Mm -hmm. I think that the latter thing. So, so it's not it's sort of the, the artist, so to speak, can't write if he agrees to sort of primarily do something for... I'm not quite sure what that's... Well, I, I mean, think, take it... I, I think, I think there, are two, there are two... Uh, what, what happens, the original, the beginning of the process is that the artist is made to feel, well, I'm an artist, I'm also a citizen. Right. Right. My, I have that's obligations true. as an artist to split off. It, I mean, two <laughs> senses of that one could have of oneself, and one has indeed many more than two senses of oneself. But let's say I could have a sense of myself as a woman, Certain obligations, perhaps to the feminist movement, other sense of myself as an American, other sense of myself as a writer, other, so on and so on and so on. What happens in these third, what you call third world situations, it's happening all over the world, obviously. You say, well, okay, a, a sophisticated government person will say to the artist, of course it would be better if you could write, but we don't need it now, it's disruptive. And we appeal to you as a citizen. I've, I've known this happened a lot in Cuba. Mm -hmm. and was done on a very high level. I mean, by, by extremely sympathetic people who were not doing this in a brutal right. way. It's like, this is the exi moral exigency of this situation. And people wanted to cooperate. Then it seemed to be that they couldn't. That is a matter of fact. Well, I don't know. Is it that? Is it it's not just psychological. It's also well, all right. it's yeah. Been, they couldn't, in fact. Not, they couldn't. They stopped Well, no, but even they couldn't write anything that could satisfy their conscience as citizens and as artists. There wasn't any way. This is the case of your Cameroon writer who <laughs> becomes a diplomat. <laughs> That in fact it proved impossible even to be a self-censor. One just had to fall silent. And people were sincerely convinced in many cases that there was a higher moral duty. That's as if the 
the notion of being a citizen was a notion defined by, by nat an idea of nation, and the notion of being artist was an, an internationalist <laughs> notion, which I think it has more and more become for us, and therefore at this point my national identity, identity is ethically richer, more compelling than my international identity as, as a member of the community of free spirits or artists or whatever. That this is primarily more difficult for an artist in the modern period than it might have been medieval or ancient. Yes, precisely because of nationalism. Exactly. Sort of not the role of the artist as artist. The role of the artist given some. Given what the nation state means now, I think we are we are assuming the existence of the nation state as a perennial thing. In fact, this very moment, which seems to bring forth the idea of liberty. Or, a sen- or an ideal, however quixotic, of a censorship-free society, that is the end of the 18th century, the well, beginning of the Romantic period, is exactly the period in which the modern idea of the well, nation-state is formed, of an idea of society completely different, and in a certain sense more repressive than any previous well, idea of society. I'm coming back sort of in a roundabout way to the thing that's bothered itself. Because if you got the small, coherent community, the artists can fit in. He might there are self I don't I'm not gonna use his words, maybe it's a transposition of what he's saying. But uh, the uh, if the artist does in the small community sharing the values, etc. etc., he can fit in. But given an immoral state, if the artist agrees to go along with the values of the culture, let's not say he's cut it he's simply selling out. But it's a deeper commitment, yeah, I should. <laughs> then it'll end yeah. up that he really can't write. So that would be part of Rousseau's paradigm. Right, yeah. But I'd like to turn it around a little bit. I mean, there, it, you, everybody here talks as if historically bad art was produced as a result of these pressures. I don't think that's the case. I mean, I think what's interesting is precisely it's only in the last 200 years that artists, and specifically writers, I think if we were talking about architects, you would have quite a different mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. Writers <coughs> excuse me, have seen themselves in opposition to the state, and therefore the pressures of the state have been felt by, art, by these writers as therefore limiting the quality, or rather diminishing the quality of what they're doing. That seems to me, I mean, as Sinyavsky said most brilliantly in this way, has not been historically the fact. And it seems to me it's still not the fact for artists in other realms. I mean, think of fascist architecture, for example. Hmm. What are you trying to say there? Well, I'm saying that one should, I, I find this conversation a bit anti-historical. Uh-huh. Well, wouldn't you say that, I mean, going back to what Susan was saying, that it is really, it's the birth of a particular kind of notion of what political community is. That is, that it's a nation state and that it has claims on an individual but which are the, the church were no, equally no, no, powerful. No, no. Yeah, but think of what going into exile meant. Think of what going into exile meant in the 18th, in, in, the, in the 17th no. century, the 16th century. It didn't, it, it wasn't the same kind of exile no, because there right. wasn't a nation state. In it to read in the same sense, they were they were both communities were both larger and smaller, but it was cut up differently. I I I just wanted to go back to the point of, of how the uh, how the writer will fall silent when having to make this you know, choice between being a writer and being a citizen of the state. 
I wish that were true. I mean, I think that's less frightening and, and invidious. In fact, I don't think it is always true. And this was brought home to me last week when Raised by Haney came back. Oh. With whom I spoke for about four hours Ooh. in private. Yes, I've been wondering what happened to him. What well, did happen? Okay. Yeah. Well, for your information, he is an Iranian... He was the foremost uh, spokesperson for the, the opposition uh, against Stop. Iran uh, to the Shah in uh, in this country in the uh, seventies. Well, and before that, and before that, in the sixties, I mean, he wrote a great. Uh, which no, but I mean that we we know about this him. This is how we 70s, know about yeah. it. But I mean, he was a solid writer in Iran, you know, who had written many many books. Uh, perhaps yeah. only a few have been published before he was in prison, and then I don't know how he got out. I don't know the history. That's not the point. And then he was, as Susan said, he, he was here and uh, and was a, you know, a, 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 an important member of Casey, spokesman, and, my, and, and was and was continuing to write yeah, as a poet and was a professor at University of Maryland. And last January he went back to Iraq supposedly for three weeks. He said he, we would see him within a month, and we saw him 13 months later, to wait last week. Now he's gone back again. And he's here for a week. Well, I mean, of course, he's very pro rebel. I mean, he's completely changed in that sense. Or, or what, what is, it's, it's, it's sort of what one would expect, except one didn't. You know, one said, my God, how you survived. What do you mean? It's wonderful. So I sat back and just listened. The point is about his writing. He has not stopped writing, but he has become a completely different person. I mean, his passwords have all been issued. They've been selling in 300,000, you know, copies of each book, et cetera, et cetera. But what he is writing now, he has not stopped writing, but he is writing propaganda. I mean, I'm putting this very simplistically obviously. I think what has happened to this man, the thing is, there's a bit that's really quite sad, it's not in terms of this particular man, but the phenomenon is that he's obviously resolved the kind of schizophrenia, and the ability to resolve that, I think, is more frightening than being silenced on one side. Uh, Unfortunately, one isn't always silenced. I mean, the way he is talking about his writing and what he writes, and he knows that he's he's uncomfortable with it. You know, because of the many contradictions that came out. I mean, he finally said, yes, I'm happier in this country, but no, the revolution is wonderful. You know, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact is, he is still writing. Um, he is con- obviously considered very important by the, by the uh, oh, he's very, very big in the Writers' Union, which is strong, but strong for what? Clearly, because since they um, protest the group around Khomeini, but not Khomeini, he's very pro-Khomeini, but anti the advisors, which is a situation <laughs> we uh, compromise, we all understand very yeah. well. Uh, so I mean, he, hasn't, he hasn't been forced to silence himself, and I think that it's important to realize that it's not always that mm. and that it's a curious, you know, uh, uh, But he's become another writer. I mean, if he would go on writing novels about buggery, Presumably, these would not be what the, the, the Iranian Revolution wants. So he has, in fact, become another writer. Right, but that's but yeah. that's but, but he. Ha- I mean, assuming that's he was a positive. writer yeah. of some integrity. Yeah. But well, but for example, I don't I don't didn't have this four hour conversation with him. But one of the, his main uh, themes as a writer was was uh, the Turkish language and the importance of you know uh, the suppression of Azerbaijan. From what he was saying the other day, it sounds that that's what he's doing now. No? Uh, it's more complicated than that. There are lots of things he left out. There are many precedents for this. I mean, when the, when the Russian Revolution came along, there were lots of very respected, very respectable, very good writers 
who tried for a time, but not only who tried to uh, adjust or negatively to fit in, but who, who positively pinned the praises of the revolution and did, I mean, bend over backwards. Some of them bent so far that they broke. Others couldn't bend and, and went away. Others were bent, uh, had themselves bent uh, by the party. But you know, I think it's a bit... It's interesting that how Razor's um, reacted. I'm sorry I missed him this time. I think one has to wait and see also what, what will happen. I mean, uh, I think that the the, the impulse is is to to fit in to do something it isn't is is generous and, and, and noble. I mean, I think he, he thinks he's doing the right thing. Whether he survives those pressures is great, and how he reacts when they become impossible. Uh, I'd like to go back to something. As uh, Susan Sontag said, I think we really we're approaching a stage where we can develop some useful definitions of uh, what we are talking about. Uh, if uh, we consider literature uh, or the literary community as a state within the state with its own laws, even if its own censorship, maybe we can understand what's going on historically and right now in a better way. This state, uh, within the state, has its own revolutions. They are literary revolutions which do not coincide with um, political revolutions. Sometimes they do. And there are times of confrontation between these two states. There are also times where they have a parallel and rather peaceful uh, development. And uh, there's not only the censorship of the state, the nation, against the uh, literature, there's also the censorship of uh, the literary conscious, conscience or consciousness of a writer against himself. I've been a, a victim of that kind of censorship. In the last book I wrote, I had a terrible time because I thought this is impossible from a point of view of style. You can't write that way. On the other hand, I felt that I had to, to write a real bad book in order to say something which could not be said otherwise. Mm -hmm. This is another kind of censorship mm -hmm. which is real too, which means yeah. that within this state that literature, which has an international uh, dimension, of course, uh, there are other laws, unwritten laws, which can um, conflict with the writer's um, duties as a citizen and as a writer. I don't know if it's clear. I mean that yeah. there are really two communities competing with each other. Uh, Mr. Wasburn. Uh, well, I, I'd just like to mention another uh, phenomenon uh, like, like Riza Barahene and uh, coming, illuminating Sydney's questions a bit. Uh, I, I met rather recently the, the main uh, and only prose writer of standing in Mozambique, uh, Luis Bernardo Honduana. He was with the Frelimo, with the liberation movement. Uh, he has written a number of, of short stories, sort of illum uh, mirror, reflecting on Portuguese colonialism and bad behavior. Now, with the country free, he is asked by the president, what would you like to do? How would you like to write? You are free to write anything you like. I mean, this kind of pleasure. <laughs> he says also, he was indeed reflecting on it very much. What would he like to write? And he found out that he would not go on writing as he had done before, because he had then written in Portuguese in order to create an opinion among European readers who were then against Portuguese colonialism and so on. Now he was alone, so to speak, in a country with 80% with illiterate. So he decided that he, he liked to write simpler stuff in all, for the literacy campaigns than he told the president that. Well, he said that, don't feel 
pleasure to write anything political or, or <laughs> and do whatever you like. And he again felt that pressure. <laughs> and so, so what he's doing now is, is to write in, in the kind of Paolo Freire pedagogical style, kind of, of parables that get illiterate people to, to feel pinch of something exciting that will make them learn to read and write. And so he tells me he does this with utmost freedom. He says that with a laugh, but I think he's, he's, um, he's sincere. <laughs> because he has found a public, yes. and that is so important for him. I mean, he, he find, he's seduced by getting people to read and write. He, he's always <coughs> acclaimed. And so he, he will, he says, in ten years, he will go back to these complicate, more complicated uh, uh, yeah. But he says, well, he is absolutely satisfied for the moment. Well, I, I'd like to raise Natalie's question, which is, I think, in the background, but not instead explicitly. Censorship in its broad sense has traditionally been not only against the writer, which we're using the phrase here, but also against the scientist and against the philosopher. And the sort of things that are being said here could be said about the philosophical community in America and the scientific community in America. There's absolutely no clear way in which some of us, one of the editors of journalism, whether we're being fair, in some sense we have a lot of power from unpublished journalism. It's, it's a big burden. Forgetting about that, I, I want to see whether or not the sort of questions that are raised here uh, are raised which uniquely relevant to the artist, or whether they can be generalized and also raised about the philosopher and the scientist uh, in a developing third world. The social scientist who's been doing a great deal of pure theory, give it up for the sake of aiding an economic growth problem. To the guy who's been trying to develop some theory of epistemology and say, this is ridiculous, given what my country's going through now, why the hell should I be so pampered to give money to develop this esoteric epistemology or something like that? So, I mean, there are two interconnected problems. One, there are all sorts of problems, if you wish, these sort of informal power relations with any community, scientific, cultural, or philosophical community. But the other thing is, are these sort of things that we're talking about, the pressure on the arts in various communities, are they unique because they'd be sort of generalized across the board? I think clearly that they can be. And just the so, way I mean, you say it's leading in a way to that it's a question of large public and small so, public. Exactly. For the philosopher who says, I'm not going to do uh, epistemology, I'm going to uh, give people reasons to wash their hands. Or give up philosophy. Uh, yeah. I think a moral problem is, is that a betrayal? I think that's... Well, I'm just asking the question. No, but I'm, I'm saying that I'm is... I'm just asking the question. The way oh, there's no such a moral you know. problem. Well, yeah. uh, <laughs> Why not? I would like to put in a good word for self-censorship. About 10 years ago, I spent a year in Cuba. I had a both marvelous and excruciating a difficult time there, difficult for myself. And while I was there, I put down my experiences and uh, grew into something like a book. When I returned, uh, when I went home, I had this manuscript and I looked at it and I had to face the problem whether to publish it or not. I would have loved to publish this book in Cuba, for obvious reasons this was not an option open to me. And so I had to decide whether to publish it in Western Germany, which at that moment we didn't even have diplomatic relations to, to Cuba and uh, there was violently anti-Cuban sentiment in my country. And after long deliberations of my own, I decided not to publish the book and it has not been published. 
Now, apart from the fact that this decision was a right one or a wrong one, I experienced this as a moment of, of, as an exercise of my liberty. And I think there's much to be said for this type of exercise of your own liberty. Therefore, I think that's the difference between self-censorship and censorship, because nobody else has told me. And even the Cubans never, I never mentioned it to the Cubans. So it was, I arrived at this conclusion entirely on my own. And I think there's much to be said for this. I think this is very interesting to many of us. I think people want to respond to what Magnus just said. Yeah, I mean, is it somehow, presumably the artist is giving the image of truth above all, and now presumably on moral grounds, if I can understand what you said, on moral grounds you thought, wouldn't be the right thing. So as not to join in a witch hunt. Yeah, well, it like would that. also have been a little bit cheap, I felt, because uh, to the extent that there was some truth in what I what I had written down, uh, uh, to, to clearly this truth would come out anyway. Uh, <laughs> I did not feel in a position to tell to these people uh, things which... That's why it would have been uh, operative. This book would have been operative only within the context of Cuba, but not in my context. But don't you think that a lot of people said that when they went to the Soviet Union yeah. in the 30s? Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you're somehow saying it's right for you to say, I won't publish it on moral ground. It's wrong for someone else to say it shouldn't be published on moral Sure. That's right. Yes. yes. Now, what's the difference? But there's a value. Because question. if someone says, it's right for me not to murder someone on moral ground. Yeah, but Sidney, you, you, you have thoughts which uh, you might voice. You can suppress your own thoughts and, and not say no, what I you know. Think. I know this. Oh, but it's the obvious. Excuse me, but it's very simple. It's the obverse of my freedom to publish is my freedom not to publish. I know. And that is why that is why I insist that self-censorship is an option which everyone yeah, of us has. As, as a matter of fact, everyone exercises. Excuse me. I mean, I'm, we are, I, obviously there's that difference that you voluntarily decide. The justification you gave, presumably, to yourself, was somehow moral grounds one ought not to publish. Isn't that right? Excuse me. Well, I would hate to correct Sydney, but there are two moral grounds here. I mean, one is the obligation to, to truth as one sees it, and the other is the obligation to political circumstances. Yes, I would quarrel with you on the moral ground. I have so every right. I have not published things on moral grounds, but I think the moral grounds are defensible. I think, in fact, history has proved you wrong. Yes, that's true. That you were morally obliged to publish that book, and you did not for the same reason that Sartre said, I don't want to talk about the gulag because that uh, will make the French working class unhappy, and which people have been censoring the bad news about communist countries for 40 years. And in fact, the people like Gide and others who said, sorry, I hate to say it, it makes me feel very bad. I know I'm giving comfort to scoundrels. Mm. Nevertheless, it's horrible there. They were right. Gide was right. Yes, you yes, were yes. wrong. Historically, that's absolutely yeah. yes. Actually, I'm going to be taking the discussion back to something that Mr. Bush said. You were describing a writer as a state within a state and saying that sometimes the uh, writer goes through a revolutionary process as a state would and so on. And one of the points I was picking up was that the relationship can be a benevolent one. It needn't necessarily be a destructive one. And an instance where it was a very benevolent one was in Quebec, where uh, during the period of the Quiet Revolution, it was the writers who articulated the sense of community that the, that the culture was striving for. And without their articulation, there wouldn't have been that Quiet Revolution. So I don't think we should assume that 
this concept of the nation state is necessarily a destructive thing. But another interesting relationship is when the writers say, we are the state. I mean, yeah. to go further. Let's say the exile writers of the Soviet <laughs> Union have said, in fact, we are. Solzhenitsyn is the head of the Russian government in exile, de facto. I mean, I don't mean this is obviously hyperbole. Of course, it isn't. We are the state. Anzenberger's decision is to act as a state on himself. Yes. Yes. No, I didn't mean that. But no, but that's what I mean. <laughs> the example of Quebec is very interesting because in a national minority, the whole problem poses itself differently. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about that. Like the, what literature means for, let's say, the uh, suppressed nations within the Soviet Union, the suppressed minorities. It has a completely different meaning. And all these uh, tensions between their national identity and their identity as a writer are less strong. But um, I would like to add something to Enzensberger's decision. I think, as a West German reader of your work, it was a wrong decision. I would have liked to read that book at that time and not to learn about Cuba five years later when there was a whole wave of um, vulgar accounts. The, the decision, uh, I don't know why it's still justified. I think it would have been a very interesting book. It would have been very interesting to hear it, especially from you uh, at that time. And this notion of applause from the wrong people which comes always up under such circumstances, is wrong. When you accept that, you can't publish anything, because you always get applause from the wrong people. Going back to this uh, national thing, the role of literature plays in the... Uh, national minority. In, uh, yeah, as kind of a subject, well, as the way of self-esteem, I don't really know what. Well, this is well. Uh, well, this is kind of often a nice remark, but I don't really know. Uh, speaking of, about Canada and the Quebecois uh, situation, well, I don't well, really know what's going on. Uh, because uh, basically, I think they have French literature and English literature going for them, and as far as I could observe it, they have nothing to say in both languages. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> this was, well, this was, uh, yeah, well, you have an insult be. for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it could be well, well, it's a kind of auto insult in a way, if you like. Well, speaking for for, for the situation uh, with national minorities in Russia. Actually, they're not so much interested, and this could be a good lesson for Quebec Round, uh, in a way. They're not so much interested in creating uh, their own literature. They look very much at Russian literature as a source of ideas, of uh, moral concerns, or whatever it is, ethics, etc., etc. Uh, basically, stressing yeah. nationalism, stressing nationalism, hardly beneficial uh, under any circumstances. Well, uh, I hate to quote Tolstoy, but well, he said that nationalism is uh, the last refuge of the scoundrel. Yeah. <laughs> it occurred to me that the question of the relationship of the development of literature and the writer and its relation to nationalism that the case of modern Hebrew literature is quite an interesting example because I think what you had there was modern Hebrew, modern Hebrew literature was born more or less in the middle to late decades of the 19th century and it began in the wake of the nationalist movement that was taking fire at the time. And the early generations of Hebrew writers, until the, the, the generation of Israeli writers of 1948, all more or less put their writing in the service of Zionism and of the new state. But what's interesting is that as soon as the state had been established, the writers of 1948 were in fact the last political generation of Hebrew writers, and that the state had a somewhat paradoxical consequence of freeing Hebrew literature, or freeing writers for apolitical writing. That's what so happened that, in Quebec. So that the Israeli writing that's taken place in the post-1948 generation, the 50s and 60s, is astonishing for how apolitical. In fact, it's, it is the place where the struggle against 
the takeover of all of life by the political situation takes place. But again, it's more or less the function of literature requirements. The moral imperative changes. That's, I mean, this is a perfect ex example of the situation of literature as speaking for a, a colonialized minority. However, that could be women, you know, more than half the human race, or it could be a very tiny group seeking some national identity. But it's, there's always one moral imperative when one is perceived yeah, to be not in power, and another moral, another moral imperative. I do want to give Richard a, an opportunity to sum up if that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> You're so sweet. I would say that we, that, that we move one step in this discussion, and it comes back to what I think this... Uh, Mr. Book and what Susan were talking about about a half an hour ago, which is in a way changed the whole framework of the discussion with which we started, which is we had a kind of historical paradox that with the birth on the one hand of the nation state and on the other hand with the birth of the concept of individual expression, that a kind of tension was set up in modern society which really does not have parallels to previous situations in which the church acted as a censor or something like that. The question I think it raises if we use Mr. Book's image of these two states, that there is a state of writing which has its own internal processes, which may or may not, but usually do not, jive with those of that larger nation. When we began talking about things like, on the one hand, a writer who reduces himself to silence in, name, in the name of being with the revolution or of self-censorship, we are looking at those two states in a certain sense, in two very, very different senses in which a person is identifying with one of those states or another. If I now tie this back to Rousseau, and I, I will try and do this only <laughs> glancingly, I would say that in a way, what Rousseau has done is exemplified that problem. That is to say, he has recognized that he is living two different existences at, at the same time. One of them is a corporate existence as a citizen, in which there is one set of constraints upon him which are appropriate. The other is an existence as a writer, in which the goal of that state is of a group of autonomous individuals, each of whom expresses without any check his own creativity. And somehow that condition of expressing oneself without any check is assumed to be something that can be entirely autonomous. This then brings us back, and I think it's a good setting for what Joseph will do in our brief session this afternoon, because that assumption of that state of living in that state of writerhood is a state in which essentially any step forward <coughs> in innovation, and then here innovation becomes synonymous with creativity, is of necessity blocked by that larger state, which one could call culture, you can, uh, uh, whatever. But that the essential antimony, in that sense, is between the notion of creativity as a form of disruption and a culture which is always being left behind by the writer. Now, I don't know if this makes, if this ties all of this together. It answers nothing, but I think what we have defined, at least, is just to underline this as a kind of conclusion to this, is a paradox that the birth of the concept of individual expression, synonymous with the birth of a very particular kind of political idea, that is of a nation which embodies a particular culture, poses paradoxes in expression, which are unlike the paradoxes that one could refer to in a, in a theocratic <coughs> regime, the old style, in the way we were borné à l'extrême. And I think, um, in, in some way, I think the discussion, is, for all its ramblingness, has, has taken us to that kind of a whole. 
we're going to reconvene at 1.30 for a short session, which Joseph will, will inaugurate. Why did that so short? This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.